Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, I'm Summer Evans in for Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Last month, Grammy Award-winning hip-hop Christian artist Lecrae released his latest album, Restoration. Before it was available to the general public, he wanted to release it to prisons nationwide. He will also be distributing 5,000 free copies of his forthcoming book, I Am Restored, How I Lost My Religion But Gained My Faith to those in the system. Lecrae has said that, quote, you never know people's circumstances. Some people may be there unjustly. Some people may be there and have turned a corner and see things from a new perspective. Later this hour, we will hear from him about how he's using his music to have conversations on mental health, social justice, and his continued exploration of his faith. But first, the story of two unlikely animal roommates. Even a scientist who does important work can learn more about life from someone quite different from himself. That message is at the heart of Skunk and Badger, a new children's book by Amy Timberlake. The Newberry and Edgar Award-winning author will appear virtually at Little Shop of Stories on Wednesday, September 30th. She joins us now via Zoom. Amy Timberlake, welcome to City Lights. Well, thank you for having me. It's so exciting to be here. Yay! (laughs) I share in the yays, and I see on your website it's one of your favorite exclamations. Yeah, I yeah, I like to cheer. <laughs> we, we, we need more cheer, Amy, especially in these times. Well, Skunk and Badger is the first in a series about two opposites who need to be friends. Would you describe their path to friendship? Yeah, so Badger is an important rock scientist, or at least that's how he thinks of himself. And he, every day he goes into his rock room and he sits at his rock stool and he sits at his rock desk and he adjusts his lamp and he looks at rocks every single day. This is his everyday life. And then one day there's a knock at the front door and it's the skunk and the skunk is going to be his roommate and he has not heard about this at all. And it's a, it's a terrible shock. As you might imagine, things don't go completely well. And so this story is kind of, uh, I would describe it sort of as Wallace and Gromit kind of meets Winnie the Pooh and <laughs> a little bit of the odd couple in it. Yeah, I love so, it. So something like that. Yeah. Now, as you mentioned, Badger is an important rock scientist, capital I, capital R, capital S. He lives in a home made available to him by his Aunt Lula. Scientific funding, I'm quoting here, scientific funding, a long-term residency, a grant of time and space. And he turns that home into a shrine for rocks and research. How does skunk contrast to badger? (laughs) 
Yeah, skunk is completely spontaneous and loves knowing other animals. Immediately, he's moving from another town, but he moves in and he's already met people. He's he's met everybody in North Twist. And so he moves in and he's just like a gust, actually a wind gust, comes into that house, into that brownstone. And he moves into a room, he flattens boxes. And then, of course, he invites all these other animals into this house. And this house is just, it's totally quiet, except for a rock tumbler, which makes lots and lots of noise. But other than that, it's just Badger and his cereal in his kitchen. You know, that's what he eats every day. He just eats cereal. And then he goes back to his rock room. So, yeah, I mean, skunk is just completely opposite, which which is definitely what you want when you're telling a story. You want the two characters to be on the opposite ends. And then, yeah, the thing is, is they find ways to come together eventually through very many hard things. Like it's actually a it's actually a hard journey for Badger. Well, and Skunk, too, in his own way. How does a skunk begin to win Badger's admiration? Well, through his cooking. I think it's straight through his stomach. He's a very good cook. He's very improvisational in his cooking and a little wild in his cooking, but it is so tasty. And those muffins, in fact, he makes the best breakfast ever. Yeah, his whole his whole thing is that breakfast is the best meal of the day. He sets it up. He's got a candle and he's got fresh muffins and then there's always some great breakfast. And so Badger starts eating something other than that pawful of cereal every day and I don't know, I think things are never the same again. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you use the the word tip clot instead of tiptoed and the fact that they are animals really doesn't matter much in terms of interaction and their general worldviews but there are some important lessons in here seriousness in skunk and badger How does this story address stereotypes, bullying, and prejudice? Oh, yeah. Well, I started writing this story. It's a very humorous and very light story in some ways. But I was, at the time I started writing it, it was during the Syrian refugee crisis. That's when I started it. So I was reading all these news articles about the Syrian refugee crisis. And I sort of simultaneously, I was working on this light story. I just started it. As I was writing that first, the very first chapter of Skunk and Badger. So Skunk and Badger is told in Badger's point of view, but Skunk comes, he knocks on the door and He basically, the reason, it quickly becomes clear that the reason Aunt Lula has offered the home to Skunk is because he doesn't have one. It's partly because he's a skunk. I mean, it's it's hard to like skunks. I mean, they spray you. So there's this thing. But only in this skunk's case, only in the direst of circumstances, he points out. Yeah, no, I mean, honestly, I when you really think about other animals you think well i mean skunks are actually quite gentlemanly you will smell you will smell horrible but they won't say bite you so (laughs) so overall you know they leave you educated that you should leave a skunk alone and you're completely fine just smelly so anyway So I was reading about the Syrian, yeah, I was reading about the Syrian refugee crisis and I was thinking about homelessness actually. So in the first chapter, Skunk says that he used to have a home, but he doesn't have one now. And when I wrote that line, I realized, oh, this is a more serious story. But my process is basically that I just let these things ride. (laughs) 
until, you know, as I work through draft after draft after draft, I just let these things remain in them and see what comes of it. And it actually does resolve itself. Because he's a skunk, you know that probably he's going to spray at some point in the story. And then this is going to lead to a great problem. (laughs) I mean, it's just a bad, it's a bad thing. Like the smell of skunks is not pleasant. Then, you know, things are said that are really, they're really hurtful. I mean, really hurtful. And I felt like at some point to get the story to the end, which I am trying not to tell too much, to get the story to the end, I I had to feel like the resolution between these two characters was actually believable. Otherwise, that there was going to be an apology that felt like a real apology with sort of an action that suggested that something was given up in order to bring the two characters together. And I felt like, okay, I found something that actually worked for me. Yeah. So that's kind of how that all happened. I don't know if that was exactly answered your question, but... No, it does, because um, I hadn't thought about homelessness or immigration. It certainly applies. I could see where misunderstanding, misconceptions about refugees would apply here. I also thought about racial injustice and how misunderstood this very fine creature is by Badger, who does have his awakening, if you will. The wit and humor throughout this story are marvelous. And the publisher indicates that the target age group for readers of Skunk and Badger is 8 to 12 years old. With that in mind, I wondered about some of the clever references, such as (laughs) skunk reading Shakespeare and telling Badger about Henry V. Skunk is a fabulous cook. He put sun-dried tomatoes and olives in his baked potatoes. My mouth was watering at that. The self-seriousness and pun of Badger's signature to his aunt, the end of his letter, he signs on the precipice of an important rock discovery. (laughs) And my favorite, Amy, a bookstore for chickens that has a shelf for chiclet. Oh, yes. Oh, good. Yes. (laughs) Now, are these sophisticated examples of humor meant for young readers or their parents? Well, I think, all right, I will say that one of my absolute favorite memories growing up is being read to by uh, my parents. And my dad in particular had this great laugh. And I actually have this visceral experience of sitting next to my dad, being very young, and he would read a story and he would start laughing about something in the story and I would be next to him and I could feel him move as he laughed. (laughs) And I just, I would laugh too, I'd always laugh. One of the things I really wanted to do with this book was make something that an adult could read with a child and would laugh and the child would get the sense of the adult laughing, and they could laugh with the adult at the same time, even if they didn't quite get the humor. And that it would be just this memory of sharing a story and sharing laughter. And then, you know, maybe you talk about what that is. Just starting those conversations with kids, and there's going to be some stuff that they won't quite get, but I wanted everyone in the family to be able to enjoy this story together, all ages. And I also wanted, when I was thinking about reading aloud, I was also thinking about, I wanted you to be able to read it aloud and the first time get everything right. So I put in sound effects and I would, I tried to not do, now that I might've done this, so 
if I, if I did it, I'm sorry, but I, I tried not to, which is when you're reading, it wouldn't say like have dialogue and then say, he said angrily, because sometimes when you're reading the first time through you for, you don't understand that that's supposed to be angry. So I always tried to make the clue on the front end so you could really read it right the first time. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, yeah, so that's what I was thinking about. I was thinking about everybody doing it together and some things you might not get, but we have had some young readers read it and it so far it doesn't seem like there's any trouble with it. They seem like they're able, they're going along and they're having a good time. So I'm pretty happy oh, about I, it. I don't think there would be trouble. I just wondered how those passages would be interpreted by them. And if you have been able to summarize Henry V for an eight-year-old and talking about why war is bad, that's a great thing. A review of Skunk and Badger in the New York Journal of Books says... Lovers of Winnie the Pooh stories and the wind in the willows will find a contemporary story in the same vein. So already we have comparisons to these literary classics for children. For me, pop culture also comes to mind. Um, You mentioned The Odd Couple, the Neil Simon play, and movie and subsequent TV show, Ernie and Bert, Jim Henson's Muppets. (laughs) Were these conscious influences on your writing, Amy? The Winnie the Pooh was the starting point for this. I was working on a different novel, but for that other novel, I was reading all of these stories about bears that were classic bear stories. So I was reading bear fairy tales, bear mythology, and then I was doing the toy bears. I just included those in. So I reread Winnie the Pooh. It'd been a long time since I'd read A.A. Milne's Winnie the Pooh. And I was struck by how beautiful those stories were, how and how well-crafted they were, and they were episodic. And I liked the feel in that world a lot, but I knew that I wouldn't really write as the kind of writer that I am. I wouldn't quite write that story. So, but it started an idea in my head, started me thinking like, what kind of story like that would you write if you, Amy Timberlake, the writer with, you know, your sense of humor and, you know, your sense of language, which is different than his, what would that be like? It was just a little writing challenge for me. So I did start with that idea of just, though I will say that it, I don't think this is like Winnie the Pooh. So if you were exactly looking for Winnie the Pooh, I would say, think more Wallace and Gromit. I would say that Wallace and Gromit is definitely an influence. I really enjoy those claymations. So that's entirely my encoding was, were the additions of Ernie and Bert and and the Muppets, whom I adore. So I only mean that as a compliment. Oh, no, I take that as a compliment. Oh, my goodness. I love those. I, you know, I I actually, I did watch Sesame Street growing up, and I was very uncomfortable with Ernie and Bert. Their relationship made me really uncomfortable as a kid. Why? So that, oh, just, you know, something about Bert making jokes about Ernie, like, Ernie had the funny voice and he always did kind of weird. I don't, you know, I think, I think it was just, sometimes I felt like Ernie's sense of humor. Sometimes he seemed a little mean to me. So as a kid, he was a little uncomfortable, though I watched them very regularly. So I was interested in the whole dynamic. Like, how did that work between the two of them? To be ever included in any of these ranks of Sesame Street or, you know, even in any review to be somebody saying Winnie the Pooh or even Wallace and Gromit or Wind in the Willows, you're just like, oh, oh my goodness, that's really nice. Thank well, you. Well, you are welcome. 
We must mention the pictures. Would you talk about the illustrations and the illustrator? Oh, yeah. What an amazing thing to have a book illustrated by John Clausen, who I think everybody knows from his hat books. There's a trilogy, I Want My Hat Back, with the bear that's lost his hat. I mean, so even if you don't know his name, if you look up this book, Skunk and Badger, and you see the the cover, and you will recognize this guy. And he's so funny. And his sense of timing is great. He's got these wonderful eyes on his characters. <laughs> Even if you just look at the front illustration of Skunk and Badger, you can see it. So anyway, he has done some really unusual things with this book. They have actually made it in a classic style. So in those old time classic books, what they did was they would put special paper inside the book and it would be thick paper and they would do full color illustrations. And they called those tip-ins. I actually didn't know this name before I started working on this book, but they call that a tip-in. And there are several tip-ins with full color art in this with John Clausen full color art, then there's black and white art. And then if you remove the dust jacket of this book and you look at the boards of the book, which is the hardcover part, and hold it up, you actually have the entire brownstone and there are no words on the, on the boards. So it's almost like you have the house right you can set the book up so it looks like you're moving into the house i kind of wish i could show you all this but you should just look at it and then if you go to my website i put some images some pictures of the book so you can see it and john clausen is going to do all three of these books and it's really exciting author amy timberlake speaking with lois reitzes about her new book skunk and badger she will be in conversation with author Mark Schulman tomorrow evening as part of the Little Shop of Stories virtual event. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Summer Evans, and for Lois Reitzes, thank you for listening. Grammy Award-winning hip-hop artist Lecrae is probably best known for helping bring Christian rap into the mainstream. His new book, I Am Restored, How I Lost My Religion But Found My Faith, comes out October 13th, and in it, he chronicles the struggles of maintaining his faith in a broken world. I spoke with him back in August ahead of the release of his latest album, Restoration. Stephen Wiley is recognized as the first artist to have recorded a full-length Christian rap album in 1985 called Bible Break. The evolution of Christian hip-hop has grown exponentially, but it hasn't been an easy path to forge. Lecrae, can you give us a brief overview of your journey into the hip-hop scene? Oh my gosh. Well, yeah, I, I grew up in hip-hop culture. So when I say that, I mean like literally before kindergarten, I was a fan of hip hop. My cousins introduced it to me. Guys were dancing in the front yard, you know, listening to hip hop everywhere. So it was a part of my DNA. And I, I wanted to be a rapper since I was about 11 years old. I love rapping, I love rap music. So I just, you know, every opportunity I got, I was listening to rap, I was writing raps, I was in class writing raps, I was consuming music videos, recording music videos, buying albums. Uh, it was just everything to me, you know, since a, since a kid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've seen in interviews and read in articles that you don't like to be labeled as a Christian rapper. How come? Well, you know, that was actually a, a, a season of mine where I was I was pretty adamant about that. I'm not as particular about it now as I was then. I think at that point in time during my career, you know, there really weren't a lot of prominent Christian artists, Christian rap artists that the mainstream could reference that they that that weren't a little cringe worthy for them. And so, uh, so you know, I was just kind of fighting for people to just accept my music for what it was instead of having these presuppositions that I was gonna, you know, have a three-point sermon in there or a choir, or I just wanted them to experience the music. And then, uh, you know, obviously I'm a Christian, but I, I, I didn't want them to box my music in before they gave it a chance. 
what do you think has changed since then where you feel like you can openly say, yeah, I'm a Christian rapper, and you feel like people that don't listen to Christian music accept you? Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, you know, certain people change the perception of things. And uh, in a lot of ways, I feel like the perception of it has changed, uh, largely due to the contributions that myself and my peers have made to where people say, well, you know, I've heard some guys and these guys are amazing. Guys like myself and uh, NF and Andy Mineo have all had gold and platinum albums and number ones. And so I think people are more willing to say that these Christian uh, rap artists can make music as good as anybody else. The evolution of your albums has kind of pivoted somewhat from the beginning. And in your albums, Church Clothes, one, two, and three, you kind of began pivoting your lyrics to reflect more on, you know, racial issues, issues that were going on in the world. What inspired you to start rapping more about those topics? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I I got to a place where I wanted to address things that were happening in society. And I wanted to talk about them from a different worldview, different vantage point. Most people look at things oftentimes when there's a circumstance or situation going on in in the world from only a couple of different narratives or a couple of different perspectives. And I'm always trying to give a different vantage point, especially being a Christian. Um, Sometimes I think there's a unique vantage point that I may be able to give that people might not have considered. You know, some people may say, oh man, 9-11 happened. And they'll say, okay, well, let's go to war. Or other people may say, let's shore up our defenses. Or some people may say, let's do something about our own government. And I would just jump in the middle to say, hey, let's consider prayer. Let's consider how do we love people from different walks of life and different perspectives. And so just kind of throwing out a third way and uh, on some social issues that were happening. Yo, old girl, the freak. Now how she singing a solo? I walked in the church with a snapback and they telling me that that's a no-no. That's backwards and I lack words for these actors called pastors. All these folks is hypocrites and that's why I ain't at church. Truthfully, I'm just doing me and I don't want to face no scrutiny. As long as the church keep wilding out, I can justify all my foolish deeds. Smoking weed, pulling up, keep that lean up in my cup. Maybe I could change the world with porn on my laptop got me stuck. Yeah, I know what's right for wrong, but that there ain't gonna sell a song. I'd rather sell my soul to save it, if that's what make my money long. It better not be no real God, but real hope that heals hearts. It shows me that I ain't living up to all the things that he put me here for. It better not be no real church, real saints who break hard and let me rock my snapback with the 501s in the J song. It better not be no real folk who don't think that they better than you. Straight to gate, drunk or high, they walk through the cold, whether with you. Now we don't want to see that, cause that might mean life change. That might mean I'm worth more than money cost sex and pipe trains. Better not be no real Jesus, real forgiveness for hurt folks. If God gon' take me as I am, I guess I already got on my church clothes. Did you feel like you were getting any pushback from fan base to be talking about some bigger issues? I think that a largely conservative Christian fan base definitely wants to make sure that anytime you're talking about social issues that you mention the gospel, you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know, for, for many of them, they can't process how things can change without the gospel. And I would say that the gospel is both uh, explicit and implicit. And so the gospel would inform my actions in many occasions as well. So, you know, case in point, I wouldn't get pushback if I said, hey, let's feed the poor. You know, it's like, hey, let's feed the poor. Everyone's like, yay, yay. When I say, wait, why are they poor? Then it's like, hey, 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 come on now. So uh, that's when it began to become more of a problem. Correct me if I'm wrong, but would you say that your fan base, maybe at the beginning of your career, were mostly white evangelicals? Yeah, well, at the peak of my career, for sure. I mean, um, the early stages of my career was pretty much all black. It was, you know, very urban because I started off at these uh, urban camps and and whatnot. And then what kind of rose me up in prominence or gave me more fan base was uh, white evangelicals kind of getting a hold of the music. And then from there, absolutely, they became the bulk of my fan base. How do you differentiate between political issues and Christian issues in your music? Or do you think there is much of a difference or do they go hand in hand? Yeah, well, the issue that I think people wrestle with is that oftentimes issues that I feel like are moral, ethical or biblical issues 
uh, our society has made them into political ideologies. And so something that should just be a moral, ethical, or biblical issue has been co-opted and made into a policy or an agenda. And so when you want to wrestle with that particular thing, you're accused of, of choosing a political side or picking a political agenda. When at the end of the day, loving your neighbor as yourself is not a political agenda, it's a, it's a biblical agenda. But that's the unfortunate part of our, our society is that we've, we've made these political ideologies. So uh, for a lot of people, they can't tell what I'm doing because they don't know how to see things from any other lens except a political lens. Have you opened up your music to broader audiences, maybe more secular? Yeah, absolutely. I think just in the same way that people think you're claiming a political agenda, you know, that 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 works against and it works for you. You know, so when you start talking about issues of um, black lives or uh, racism, you know, of course, a mainstream or liberal uh, mainstream audience would say, hey, he's on our team. You know, yes. And then when you start talking about issues that conservatives love, then they say, yes, he's on our team. But mainstream, oftentimes, it's more so about authenticity. And I think a mainstream audience appreciates the authenticity that I display. With your album, Restoration, you touch upon a lot of mainstream topics that are currently in the media right now. Mental health, racial injustice, police brutality. How long were you working on this album? It was a two-year process two years of working on this album, I knew that I was going through my own personal journey of healing and restoration. And so I wasn't in a hurry to get it done. I, I wanted the album to almost work in real time. I felt as if I was going through a process and I wanted the music to take people through that exact same process so that by the time the album is complete, the listener feels like they have a roadmap and an understanding of you know what a restorative process looks like. Mm-hmm. Did those themes become incorporated along the way while you were creating the album, or did you already know, this is what I want to talk about? Yeah, absolutely. Those themes became very evident as I started writing. You know, I started initially just being transparent and saying, man, I messed up, and uh, I, I'm not going to find healing unless I admit that I messed up. And so, uh, so that's where the music begins, is me admitting that I need restoration. And then as I started you know, peeling back the layers, you know, this is, this is two years of therapy, of good friends, of just a lot of introspective work that ends up coming out on this album. Pray this on me, pray this on Let me go, let me go. I've been going through so much, I swear these people let my throat. That's on me, that's on mamas. On my mama, I can't take no more, so miss me with that drama. Get your commas, get your racks straight, get your facts straight. Hold me down, I rise up on her like the tax rate. Keep my past straight, never lack faith. God been working, they gon' have to hold me back, man. And tell them, tell them, tell them. You can pick a side if you wanna. You already know who I bro with. You don't want no problems with me. Get these shackles off Shackles on my feet, feet. Yeah, they won't let me be. Won't you say? Can you unpack your single Deep End and what you're referring to in the lyrics? Yeah, uh, Deep End was a song that initially wasn't, it was written in real time as well. It wasn't really meant to go on the album. It was just me trying to express myself. And, you know, it was one of those songs where I felt like, man, so much is happening all at one time. Societal unrest, the pandemic, racial injustice, cancel culture. And it was just so much weighing on my mind that, you know, I, I wanted to write something cathartic and say, hey, I feel like I'm going off the deep end. But at the same time, I believe that God is holding everything together. And I want to, you know, lament. It's a real time song of lament that I wanted people to, to be able to say, wow, I hear the pain um, that he's experiencing and this pain that I'm currently experiencing or that I have experienced and I can relate to it. Give me a reason 
I've been trying not to uh, Stay on point, point I've been trying to save my voice But y'all gay Me no choice The world gone mad Can't ignore this noise Look at these people Found dead in the streets I got some partners That hate the police Me, I'm just trying to Hold on to my peace Cause I'm liable to lose it And go get the peace I need a reason I need a season Pleaded with Jesus All Jesus. grieving They be like F you and what you believe in I do not trip I keep it G What in the H You say in the I I don't care when I'm talking to God Don't need a reason To open my eyes If I'm still breathing I'm running for my yeah. I've been doing better than I was before I walk with the limp cause I've been wrestling with the Holy Ghost Deep in this pit but still somehow I keep on floating on Thought I lost my grip but God reminded me he's holding on I really liked at the end in your lyrics how you said If I'm still breathing, I'm running for Ahmad And that was kind of memorialization for Ahmad Aubrey who died earlier this year so on the album you have songs with artists like john legend bj the chicago kid and marky bassey how do you normally decide who you want to collaborate with oftentimes collaboration for me is about authenticity and you know can we authentically connect on whatever subject we're talking about so i would never force an artist who doesn't agree with the particular topic of the song to try to work on that song with me I want to talk to artists who, you know, are passionate about these particular subjects and can relate. Similar to, you know, you, you mentioned Marky Basie and him and I just were talking about, man, how we navigate and wrestle with just feeling the pressures and we just want to get away sometimes. And so, uh, you know, the song comes out of that reality. Um, but, but a lot of times, too, it's just I have to respect their music as well. So, so if I don't respect their catalog or I'm not a fan, I'm not just going to do it just because, you know, they have a big name. Right. Is it tricky collaborating with secular artists that don't necessarily talk about the gospel in their music? Well, again, for me, I would never ask an artist who wasn't passionate about faith or the gospel specifically to do music on that wavelength. I think you collaborate on things that are neutral or that are not affected by that topic. And so I would liken it to you know, working on a school board or a board for an organization, you know, you work together with people on a school board to make sure that education is upheld and that uh, that Spanish class is, is happening and that children are not being taken advantage of. And we can all agree on that. I think when it comes down to songs that are more explicit about my faith, those are songs that, that are particular. And I, and I would I want to make sure that the artist shares my belief before they start talking about anything along those lines unless the song is you know supposed to be contradictory and we're supposed to be kind of having a a conversation about how we disagree then that would be a different type of song can you talk about your latest single with john legend drown yeah drown was actually one of the first songs that was done for the album comes from a genuine place of again in the midst of needing restoration you have to admit that you're broken you have to admit that man i feel as if i'm drowning I feel as if like the world all around me is going haywire and I don't know how I'm going to be able to stand. And John and I, you know, got together. Uh, we, we got some time in L.A. We got some time over FaceTime just to collaborate and tweak the song. And, you know, it's one of those songs that I think apply to people in different ways at different times. You know, there are moments where I'm saying to God, like, where are you? I feel like I'm drowning. There are moments when I'm talking to my wife where I'm like, where are you? I feel like I'm drowning. And so, uh, you know, I think it's one of those type of songs where it can be very interchangeable depending on who you are and where you are and what moment you're in, you know, contextually.
And speaking of drowning, that's probably a feeling that a lot of people have right now with the coronavirus pandemic still going on. How has that affected you as an artist and creating this album during this time? Yeah, it's been tough. I'm very collaborative. I love being around people and just feeding off the energy of people. And so it's been tough to, to be isolated, to have to do a lot of things alone at home. So that's been difficult. Uh, fortunately, a lot of the creative process for the album was done before the coronavirus hit. But the hard part now is just figuring out how, how we move on. Like, what is our new normal? You know, touring an album or performances, you know, all of those particular things are now just, just strange. And I'm not sure what that's going to look like. Christian hip-hop artist Lecrae. We will be back with more of my conversation after a short break, and we will hear how he has given back to the Atlanta community. You're listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. You're listening to City Lights on WABE. I'm Summer Evans, and for Lois Reitzes, thank you for listening. Let's return to more of my conversation with Christian hip-hop artist Lecrae. Since the coronavirus pandemic hit the U.S., Lecrae has partnered with several Atlanta nonprofit organizations like Love Beyond Walls and Live Free USA's Faith in Action, Mask for the People campaign. I began by asking him how he got involved in these partnerships. I have always been extremely passionate about serving the disenfranchised uh, since I was a kid. My grandmother would take trips all around the city and even into Mexico to make sure that people who did not have and were underserved uh, could be served. And so that's always been a passion of mine. As I've gotten busier, I've always wanted to make time to do those particular things and, um, and just make sure that I have friends in those spaces who were involved in those particular endeavors. And so, um, both Michael McBride with Mass for the People, Terrence Lester with Love Beyond Walls. Those are great friends of mine. And those are people I reach out to when I'm, I just want to know what's happening on the ground. Uh, I've gotten to serve with Terrence many times, serving people who are experiencing homelessness and raising awareness and um, gotten to work with, you know, Michael McBride on different projects and working in the prisons is just another passion of mine. That's how my career started. A lot of people don't know that. And so uh, that was just a natural overflow of relationships. How did you participate in what they were doing with these two campaigns? Yeah, initially, I just wanted to volunteer. I wasn't, I, I did not anticipate there being a campaign. But then, you know, you realize that me showing up to volunteer carries more weight. So, you know, as far as volunteering, I just wanted to, hey, how can I make sure that people experiencing homelessness can wash their hands, can eat? How can I make sure that prisoners during COVID are taken care of? And then you realize like, well, you know what? I may have more to offer than just my hands and feet. I have a, a platform that can raise awareness. So let's go ahead and, and use my platform to raise awareness and campaign for some greater change. And can you just talk a little bit about what Love Beyond Walls did in relation to the sinks that they put around Atlanta? Yeah, so Love Beyond Walls, you know, Terrence Lester had an idea to have hand washing stations around the city and he didn't have any. And I said, well, well, let's let's go get them. You know, I, I wanted to make sure we started off with the initial 15. So there were 15 of them around the city. And then after that, it uh, moved up to 30. And then so uh, the campaign got so large to where now there are uh, hand washing stations around the world. I mean, it got as far as Australia, which was amazing. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. So it was just, you know, Atlanta led the way in that endeavor, which was awesome. And then masks for the people, you guys handed out masks to people in the Fulton County Jail? Yeah, so Fulton County Jail for the essential workers, for the incarcerated individuals, 
And then also for frontline workers and people, you know, who are just dealing with life and needed access to hand sanitizer. And, you know, you would think that hand sanitizer and face masks are readily available for everyone. But for some certain people, they're just very hard to come by. I, I talked to a group of guys uh, who were living on the streets uh, the other day. And, you know, they were just very fortunate to get the masks and get the hand sanitizer. It was a big deal for them as well. So you have a book coming out in October called I Am Restored, How I Lost My Religion But Found My Faith. Very powerful title. Where does this book pick up from your previous one, Unashamed, that it left off from a few years ago? Yeah, I think when you read Unashamed, you hear this kid who has talked about all of his childhood traumas and, and how it's made him who he is and he's going to be unashamed to move forward in this world. And then you know, that same individual now has a number one album and is thrust into the corners of hanging out with, you know, Kanye West and Jay-Z and, and is now thrust into political landscapes and, and asked to choose a side or politically and talk dealing with racial issues and, and uh, marital issues. And so all of those things that most people would look at and say, Let's not talk about those. I'm saying, no, let's absolutely talk about them because they helped shape me into the person that I am today. And I want to walk people through how I navigated all of these chaotic moments because I feel like it may be healing for people. Uh, how do you navigate being in the public eye and having to grow relationally, spiritually, racially, politically? How do you deal with the mistakes that you've made and how do you deal with the triumphs and the injustices? And so uh, this book helps people navigate those particular aspects of life. Mm -hmm. So speaking of having open and honest conversations about racial inequality and things that are currently in the political sphere right now, on June 15th, Louis Giglio, the lead pastor of Passion City Church, a mega church here in Atlanta, invited you and Chick-fil-A CEO Dan Cathy on stage to talk live about race and the evangelical church. For those who didn't see the video, at one point, Louis was discussing the term white privilege and how that term is a hard pill for white people to swallow. So he suggested that the word's so difficult to adjust to, then maybe we should just call it white blessings. And that phrase sparked a lot of controversy over social media, and it went viral in a matter of hours. I know for him, I know for you. And first off, I just wanted to ask you how you felt to be on stage in that position as really the only black man on that stage. Yeah, if I'm honest, it was shocking. It was it was difficult. And I think about it in hindsight 2020, you know, it was really, I mean, there was no win in that situation for me as far as that was concerned. It was just an overwhelming circumstance where, you know, privately, I think it's easier to help people fill in gaps in their understanding and correct people uh, when when statements are made that are painful, hurtful, and publicly, it puts you at a humongous disadvantage because now you you know you're thinking about a million things at one time. You've heard something that has caught you off guard, and you're thinking about how do you respond, and you're thinking about oh, okay, wait a minute, what does he mean? Is he sincere? Is he not sincere? And I, and so there's so, so many things swirling in your head, and it was just a really impossible circumstance to, to deal with uh, for me in that situation. Now that you've had time to kind of reflect on what he said, what are your thoughts about him using that term? Well, obviously, I don't I don't think it was appropriate. I think that the idea of wanting to change white privilege is a, is a form of privilege in and of itself. You know what I mean? I think that there's gaps. You know, we all have gaps in our understanding and our, in our processing. And I think uh, those gaps are, it's best for us to work those out privately before we stand up and speak as if we're experts on particular subjects, because we can do a lot of damage. And, um, and I think that's ultimately what happened is, you know, damage was done because of the, the candor which which some of these things were, were spoken about. Moving forward, I mean, my advice for all of, you know, it's for white leaders, obviously, as you're speaking about race and people of color, but it's for all leaders when you're talking about areas uh, that, you, that you don't live and breathe in. If I were to, to have a dialogue about homosexuality as a straight man, I would be doing way more listening than talking just because I want to learn and I want to hear from the vantage point of people who live this out every day. And I think that's more of the posture that uh, should be taken in these situations. 
Have you and Louie been able to discuss what had happened since the incident? Yeah, we talked um, after the incident. And, you know, my, my commentary for him was to continue to take it seriously and to learn. Um, because, you know, people will think it's a virtue signal. People will think, oh, you just had Lecrae on here so that you can look like you care about these particular topics. And if that's not the case, then, you know, you'll continue doing the work for the long haul. It's, it's a lifelong journey. Mm-hmm. Do you have any advice for white evangelicals that are looking to bridge the gap in their communities? Yeah, a lot of listening, a lot of empathy, a lot of listening. The issue at hand is that oftentimes when white evangelicals confront issues of race, their their entire worldview is being shaken. And so it's very difficult to have your worldview shaken without feeling abrasive or feeling defensive. And so uh, I would say, be prepared to have your worldview shaken and that be okay. I mean, it, it, we have to have our worldviews kind of destructed and, and rebuilt. That's a, a part of being a, a believer. That's a part of being a Christian is that you embrace that, oh my goodness, I saw the world one way and now I, I have to see it a different way. And that's a lifelong journey. Uh, we see through dim glasses that hopefully one day we'll see clearly, but you've got to be patient. You've got to be empathetic. You've got to listen. And then you got to take action white evangelicals have got to go beyond having conversations and move from conversation into implementation. So I have to ask, what's next for Lecrae? Will hip-hop and rap remain your main focus in the future, or will you be focusing on new philanthropic opportunities? You know, um, I think music will always be a part of who I am and what I do. I think end of the day, music is a, a mode of communication for me. I'm a communicator. I'm a thought leader. And I use music to do that. I use writings and books to do that, speaking opportunities. And so you'll always hear me uh, using my voice to communicate about things that uh, are important in society. The mode by which I'll do that uh, may change. So we'll, we'll have to stand by and see. That was Grammy award-winning Christian hip-hop artist Lecrae. His album, Restoration, is out now. His new book, I Am Restored, How I Lost My Religion But Found My Faith, will be released on October 13th. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. with Alan Batt, the food photographer also known as Batman. His latest volume is Toxin Black, 101 Black Chefs in America. Our producers are Ryan McFadden and myself, Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and Lois Reitzes is our host. I'd love it if you'd follow her on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Today's show and the City Lights archives are at wabe.org slash citylights. And you can check out our new podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening to 90.1. W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.